0: Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, I'm talking with Jonathan Wick of TransUnion about hospital strategies for restarting elective procedures. Later, I'll be speaking with HFMA's Director of Chapter Relations, Tracy Packingham, about our recent inaugural virtual leadership training conference, and what members can expect from upcoming virtual events like our annual conference. That's coming up after we check in with Rich and Chad.
1: Hi, this is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. And hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us again today on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Chad, thanks for uh, joining us as well. And I hope you and yours are staying safe and healthy in the midst of this pandemic.
2: We're doing all right. Hope you guys are as well.
1: One day at a time, buddy. One day at a time. All right. So (laughs) let's just jump in our first item here. I wanted to ask you about a new report from the American Hospital Association. And this one, of course, came out late last week. Estimated hospitals will lose a cumulative $202.6 billion in revenue between March 1st and June 30th. That comes out to an average monthly loss for the sector of $50.7 billion. And the top line among those losers was $161 billion in lost revenue from canceled elective, non-elective surgeries, outpatient care, and reduced emergency department use.
2: You know, Rich, so that is in line with what we had estimated sort of back of the envelope based on some analysis that JP Morgan had done. And so we had we had estimated that if the period of time for which non-emergent procedures were delayed, canceled due to CMS's guidance was anywhere between two and a half and three months that the number would be 125 to $150 billion, And that was on the hospital side alone. So that didn't include the impact of employed physician groups. So the, so the, the pro-fee that employed physician groups would generate. So that, that number feels right. And honestly, it's in line with kind of at, a, at the micro level of what we're hearing in terms of of lost revenue from our our members, but they're seeing at their institutions. So uh,
1: as the wheel turns, we're now looking at states and uh, hospitals within those states, trying to restart to some extent those elective procedures. And I wanted to to check with you really quick to hear what you might be hearing or, or anticipating as some of the key financial barriers a hospital may be wrestling with as they try to restart
2: those. In terms of the the barriers, and you know, I, I probably won't break them down financial versus non-financial, but you know, there's sort of a bucket of things that are psychological. Obviously, it's how do you create an environment where patients are comfortable and confident that they're not going to contract COVID as a result of being in a healthcare setting. There's certainly some concern there in the public's eye about that. From an operational standpoint, obviously, it's Is there available PPE? Do you have capacity on your inpatient units? So should your community see a sudden flare up that you could handle the elective cases that you would have in-house plus any surge from COVID? And then also one of the things that hasn't been widely discussed as we think about this is then post-acute resources, because you can imagine that in a lot of cases, some of these early non-emergent cases that are going to be Brought in are going to be patients that are sick or more severe, those who couldn't have delayed care much longer. And so, for an example, somebody who needs to have a cardiac procedure done or a cabbage procedure done on a, on a non emergent basis that's not going to be suitable to be discharged to home. Typically, they would go to a skilled nursing facility to recuperate. But obviously, in many communities, seeing skilled nursing facilities not accept new patients for fear of admitting someone or taking someone in who has COVID and then it creates community spread within the facility. So where do you discharge patients who need some type of institutional care post-procedure, but you can't get them into a sniff? And certainly we've asked CMS for guidance on that scenario. The responses back have been inconclusive as to whether any of the the existing waivers would apply to that scenario. Hmm, I see. Well, uh, another
1: thing to check with in terms of trying to restart elective procedures was what kind of strategies you may be hearing hospitals using in terms of moving back or restarting that that area of their business. Some have talked about the uh, a sort of 24-7 factory approach, uh, get back to some sort of massive volume ahead of even where they were before the virus. And others have discussed phased approaches, uh, maybe based on patient mortality threats, leading the way and then less serious health conditions coming online later. Can you give us some sense of that?
2: Yeah, and you know, Rich, I think your approach is really going to be market by market depending on how impacted your area was and your your system was by COVID-19 admissions. So, if you're in an area that didn't see a, a, a spike in cases, has not seen a spike in cases, I think bringing in a 24 by 7 factory approach is probably makes more sense because you you, you don't have the existing basic cases in the community, assuming that sort of the testing in the community also indicates that to the extent that it's there. The other thing that then kind of the the more phased approach or the more measured approach I think would be appropriate in communities that have seen heavier COVID caseloads. And also just to make sure that you've kind of, you, you retain that additional surge capacity if you need it, if there's another flare up. The other thing that we're hearing, obviously, is some institutions talk about creating COVID versus non-COVID facilities. And so one of the places that we're seeing this, particularly for less intensive procedures, so procedures that could be done on an outpatient basis, is really using the the ASC to sort of run through those procedures that don't need to be done on an inpatient basis and making sure, obviously, as part of your preoperative protocol, that you're testing all of your patients in advance to make sure that they're COVID-19 negative. But then also, obviously, doing doing health checks for all the professionals that will be working in the building and, and staff that are in the building to make sure that none of them are COVID-19 positive. So that way you keep an air quotes clean environment or COVID-free environment. Sure.
1: And certainly for the public perception benefits as well, secondarily, of course. But uh, you need to make sure that the public is very comfortable with, with coming back in your
2: facilities and and confident they're, they're not going to face any risk there, too. That's exactly right, and that's one of the reasons why you segment out, particularly for the for in the ambulatory surgery center, where you would do that, just to make sure that you know you're not going to be crossing paths with someone who is COVID nineteen positive, or somewhere in the building is getting treatment on an inpatient basis for COVID.
1: Okay, well, thanks again for all the great insights, Chad, on this really fast moving and multifaceted national challenge.
2: Rich, always always good chatting with you. Hope homeschooling's going well.
1: Oh, how could homeschooling not go well? Let's face it. And uh, that, that'll do it for us today. So, uh, of course, you can also keep up with the latest legal policy and uh, financial developments for the industry on our news page at hfma.org forward slash news. Thanks for listening.
3: If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash
0: Now that social distancing restrictions are starting to relax in some areas of the country, hospitals and health systems are thinking more about their strategies to reopen for elective procedures. And none of it's easy. First and foremost, there's the issue of how to do it safely and how to let patients know it's safe. Then, of course, there's the question of how to handle the volume, not just on the clinical side, but in the revenue cycle as well. Joining me today to talk through some of those issues is Jonathan Wick, a principal at TransUnion. I'd like to start by talking about elective procedures. No one's been doing them, but as we start to open up a little more, we're starting to see hospitals wanting to do some of those elective procedures how do we get there? We can't flip a switch. So how do we get there in terms of starting up what feels like more normal operations?
3: So TransUnion actually just released a press release today talking about a 4% uptick that happened in the month of April without patient procedures. So we're starting to see, I think, a bottoming out, if you will, of the electric procedures that were deferred back in March, uh, mid-March. Uh, based off of the Surgeon General's recommendation to have them. So we are seeing that recovery happen. I do not think it's on the magnitude of weeks, uh, Eric. I think it's on the magnitude of months, and it's not like flipping a switch. I think what it is is there's lots of steps that have to happen. The fellow of American College of Surgeons and CDC under direction from CMS, you know, listed some very specific requirements that have to occur, and they're not easy, but they're things like having a 14-day transmission rate leveling or that R-naught factor that you've heard about. PPE supplies, staffing levels, and and ultimately, which is almost laughable right now, testing, right, uh, for COVID patients. And you don't have to have all those things in place, but you have to have a plan if those things aren't in place and your operations have to reflect not having those things in place. So that planning needs to occur first. And then you've got this bolus of patients that were deferred in mid-March. And that probably is roughly 200% of your normal volume and, and where that number comes from around, you know, you have about six to eight weeks of deferred volume. And so that bubble in the holes has just been stuck there since it got squeezed back in March. And some of those patients want to come back and and others don't. That uh, TransUnion Survey I mentioned, Consumer Survey, talks about how millennials and Gen Zs are more likely to come back than boomers and silence concerning things like hospital safety and uh, rescheduling their appointment and, and, and others. And I think hospitals and providers specifically are going to have to reach out very specifically from a proactive standpoint to really engage their patient population and and be prepared to answer questions like, did you have a COVID patient in your hospital? When was the last time you cleaned it? Is there a place I can go where there wasn't one? Uh, I just lost my job. I don't have insurance anymore. Does that change things? And, And you and I know you bet it does. And how's that hospital handle that? And do they spin up the financial assistance things or the payment plans and do debt forgiveness or try to get the patient enrolled in Medicaid and wait another month for that. Those are all headwinds that are there in the in the path to recovery for providers. Uh, I think they'll go through that path as quickly and as safely as they can, but it's going to be months, not weeks.
0: So in the meantime, we've got people waiting in the wings who had things that in, in a perfect world would have happened in March or April but we've also got people coming in who, in a perfect world, would have had things in May or June. And so how do we get through that backlog and anything new that comes up? Is is it enough that people might be coming back more slowly to kind of work our way through all of those things, or are hospitals really going to be slammed?
3: Yeah, great question. I think they'll initially be slammed. Uh, you know, I've done an analysis a little bit. It talks through just the Capacity, so, if a hospitals running at one hundred percent right they they went down to sixty and they created that backlog we just talked about. Uh, I've talked to several hospitals in the market. they're going to probably try to get to 105, 110, maybe even as much as one hundred and twenty percent capacity to handle this backlog and just also the 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 nuance of people that were waiting while all this was happening things how they would do that is they would actually uh, operate on weekends, for example. so you know an elect- elective surgery center may have only operated Monday through Friday and they they'd open it up on weekends the diagnostic testing centers may operate into the evening. Uh, so MRIs and CTs and lab draws wouldn't close at six o'clock. They may close at midnight. Uh, you know, I think it'll be month of that or two months of that, maybe three, until the backlog kind of sifts out. Uh, I also think as many patients want to come back, they have choices, and we learned some things with COVID-19 about level of care. You know, we saw ED visits go down for non-COVID things, and patients were able to wait, you know, maybe to go to an urgent care or primary care physician or not at all, and so they may do their homework, uh, for lack of a better word, and, and look at ambulatory surgery centers or other hospitals if they can get them in earlier. Because I think hospitals aren't going to get a one-to-one return of this volume. It's going to be some deficit of that. And where the loss or leak, if you call it, uh, goes is, is one of three places, I think. Uh, it's going to go to not at all. The patient magically got better. So whatever was hurting or bothering them before isn't somewhat as important now. And they're just going to sit on it for the next six to eight months. Uh, they got in somewhere else right? They went to another facility or somewhere else or, you know, they they presented in the emergency room because it got so bad that they had to have it and it already happened and that procedure transitioned from something that was getting outpatient reimbursement to ED or inpatient reimbursement because the prognosis or the diagnosis of the patient got so bad that they had to have it early. I know providers are following the tiered framework of acuity as they're bringing patients back. So, In English, you know, someone with a cardiac step placement would be put on a schedule before someone who has a strained knee (laughs) from a surgery standpoint, Um, and it's much more sophisticated than that, but that's what the American College of Surgeons put out as a guideline, and depending on how far down you are in that list as a patient, the timing could be longer, and especially if you're just waiting to get in where you were versus looking at other options.
0: A lot of hospitals very concerned, rightly so, about their revenue cycle right now, especially without these elective procedures. What can providers be doing to remain financially viable as they're trying to come back?
3: Yeah, I I think financial viability, uh, you know, is going to surround just these payment mechanisms that need to happen. So these procedures that were deferred, uh, the elective ones especially, are ones where they subsidize a lot of the other operations within a hospital. And and by that, I mean, they typically were funded or or insured patients. They've gone to their primary care or specialist and gotten financially verified. Uh, They've had labs and pre-op testing, maybe MRIs and CTs to understand what they are doing. So they've already kind of gone through the revenue cycle car wash, if you will, and been verified. And so they pay well as well. Uh, and so those cases have to be reverified, because if they were financially cleared back in February for a March procedure, I heard studies today, some states are one in four are unemployed. It certainly is not out of the realm of, of likelihood that one in six or one in eight of your patients are unemployed at this stage. And most people get their insurance through their employer. They were on that insurance probably through the month of April, possibly through the month of May. And it depends whether they elected COBRA or not. To be remain financially viable, they're going to have to re-verify that information, ensure the eligibility and the estimation and all those payer rules are met. And if the person's not on that insurance anymore, they're going to have to figure out how to get them onto Medicaid or the hospital's charity program or figure out a way to fund it through self-pay. And, and that, that becomes a very challenging road. But it's, like revenue cycle right now is more important than it ever has been, I would argue, in these elective populations because of all the disruption that's happened on the insurance side. Uh, and it's very, very important for them to find coverage that wasn't there, ensure that coverage is covering that that is needed, and then making sure the patient can afford those bills uh, depending on where they're at. I think patients are also going to shift to high-deductible plans as they go if they get into an exchange plan, for example. So they may have had a $100 copay two months ago, and now it's a $1,000 deductible today. And that's a different payment package for the hospital to navigate, and those things need to be known up front.
0: We talk a lot about the patient financial conversation at HFMA I think we need to talk about the payer financial conversation too, especially right now. So what do those conversations look like?
2: On
3: the payer side, I've heard lots of folks, and I completely agree with this, reaching out to their payers and trying to strengthen that relationship. It's always been somewhat adversarial. I think for our market to get better, we've got to have some collaboration and alignment between the provider and the payer. And providers are asking the payer for uh, concessions surrounding out of timely filing. So can we take a little longer to submit our claims? We need to document our claims a little bit differently if they're COVID, for example, and make sure you've got the right codes on them and those types of things. We had a bunch of patients come through the ED because of this, and ED claims are notorious for having holes in them and, and don't have the right demographics and things because the triage nurses aren't registrars, and there's just a gap in the knowledge base there, different skills, different things. Payers, you know, the authorizations can be waived, maybe, or the notifications for admissions, those types of things. And I think payers understand there's a lot of disruption happening in this as well from an eligibility standpoint. And having those transactions be accurate and being able to report what they need to in a timely fashion that allows the provider to make good decisions with their patients is very important right now. So that relationship needs to be very, very tight and very, very real time. Uh, with those transactions and conversations to help influence that patient financial experience
4: as well. Hi, I'm Joe Pfeiffer, President and CEO of HFMA. Without question, we're living in uncertain times during this COVID-19 pandemic. And the amount of information online and in your inbox must be pretty overwhelming. HFMA is helping its members make sense of it all. We've set up a special page on our website to provide members with a consolidated view of COVID-19 news coverage and its effect on healthcare finance. Visit hfma.org, click topics, then coronavirus. We also invite you to share your thoughts and concerns with other members in HFMA's community. Although many of us are practicing social distancing, we can lean on each other during this challenging time. This is a time to band together and the entire HFMA staff is here to support you. In addition, I and the CEOs of ACHE, AMGA, MGMA, AAPL, and NAHQ have collaborated to sync up our resources. We're providing you the best resources we have available right now collectively to help you manage the evolving nature of COVID-19. We encourage you to visit the sites and there'll be links on each other's sites on our websites and use the information free of charge. We will be updating resources as we learn more by working together. We will be better armed to advance the health and fulfill the missions that founded our great organizations. We're here for you. Let me end by thanking you for all that you do for your organization, for HFMA and the healthcare industry at large. Thank you.
0: By now, we're all pretty used to attending virtual meetings and events. And at HFMA, we've had to adapt pretty quickly with some of our bigger events. And here to talk about that today, I have our Director of Chapter Relations, Tracy Packingham. Welcome, Tracy.
5: Thank you, Erica. How are you today?
0: I'm great. How are you? I'm
5: doing fantastic. Thank you.
0: As long as I've been at HFMA, I've heard about the leadership training conference as one of the favorite events people go to. And a big part of that is seeing friends and reconnecting. But this year, it obviously couldn't happen in person. And your team had to pivot pretty quickly to make it a rich virtual experience. How did you manage that? And how did it go over?
5: Yeah, actually, it went over very well, but it was a transition that happened several times. We had to redesign and reimagine what LTC was going to look like. Leadership Training Conference, as most of us know it as LTC, is one of the highlights as a chapter leader to build the team camaraderie and learn from peers across the country. This year being virtual has been a unique experience, and we've had to redesign a few times. And that, you know, navigating through uncharted territory, we had to take consideration on how the chapters and regions would be able to learn um, from the lessons that we've taken away from some of the virtual experience, but also make it as cost effective as possible. One thing being the facilitator has taught us is pivoting on the fly and virtual experience is just that. We plan for the best and, and for the worst. The overall satisfaction for the first April 27th event, we had great feedback from our attendees on what went well and what we could have done better. So we welcome all that feedback as we can only move forward from here.
0: We've already announced that our annual conference is being shifted from a live event to a virtual one and you're part of the team making that happen. What tidbits can you share on what people can expect?
5: So the annual conference committee is moving at a rapid pace, and and we've used that rapid word a lot, rapid fire, rapid pace, everything's happening in such a a speed that the dates have been set. We're looking at June 24th and June 26th, July 15th and July 17th, and also August 12th and 14th. At the July event, you can expect the executive connections where we still are going to be putting people together. We look forward to that to solve for the future transition and unfamiliar territory we're in with the business partners and the providers that we can connect. The team has been meeting quite a few times a week just to learn about content. Do we need to shift the content to be in the environment that we're in today? And what can we still manage through the speakers and and some of those resources that we had already set up for the annual conference, the live event that we can pivot into our virtual event. So lots of lots of good things coming.
0: I'm really excited for this. I was very excited for the live event. That's always a really good time. And it's it's a great way to to interact with members. But I think that this virtual event is going to be very, very cool in a different way. So I'm excited to see how it goes.
5: I agree. And I think that it also gives us an opportunity to maybe get into the digital world a little bit quicker than what we were expecting. And I think we're learning that maybe live events also come with a virtual component. So we're, we're taking that into consideration as we move through these days.
0: Well, thank you so much for this update. And I look forward to hearing more. Thanks for joining me on the podcast.
5: Thank you, Erica. Take care.
0: Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our director of content strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to my husband, who took the kids outside so I could record without them yelling in the background. But I do want to hear from you listeners. Please keep in touch with us in our HFMA community on social media, and of course, over email at podcast at hfma.org.